Welcome to Nutrition for Mortals, the podcast that says life is too damn short to spend your time and attention worrying about your food choices. So let's take a deep breath and then join us, two registered dietitians and friends, as we explore the world of nutrition with a special focus on cultivating a healthy and peaceful relationship with food. My name is Matt Priven, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and the best dietitian on planet Earth, Jen Baum. Hey, Jen. Hey, Matt. And just a quick reminder, if you would like to support the show, we are on Patreon. A portion of our Patreon support also goes to support an amazing organization called The Hunger Project. You can always email us with show ideas. You can follow us on Instagram. We love hearing from everyone. And that's all I got to say to start us off today. Good. I'm glad that was quick because we have quite a show today. I think that we are totally starting the new year off right The first episode of this new year is you and I getting to have an amazingly insightful phone call with Evelyn Triboli. Yes, we do. And I'm not going to fanboy out too hard here because you're going to hear that I did in the conversation coming up. (laughs) But I think we could set the stage a little bit. For folks who don't know who Evelyn Triboli is, can you let them know? Yeah, for sure. So Evelyn is a registered dietitian who, along with Elise Resch, created Intuitive Eating as a non-diet framework back in 1995. The book Intuitive Eating is now in its fourth edition, and it is a model that has been extensively studied. And it's also a model that has been really central to helping countless individuals heal their relationship with food. And I will say, Matt, we covered a ton of ground in our conversation today. We talked about Noom. We talked about Julia Child. We talked about common (laughs) misconceptions of intuitive eating and even what we would change in the world of nutrition if given supreme power. And so I think it's a really great conversation. I think it's a great episode. Absolutely agree with you. Let's jump into it. All right, let's do it. Well, Evelyn, we are so excited to have you on the show. We're, we're kind of overwhelmed that you're here, actually, to be honest with you. I am thrilled to be here. Thrilled. I was talking to a friend earlier, and he said, well, what are you, what are you doing this afternoon? And I said, uh, I'm doing a podcast with Evelyn Triboli, and he's not in our, in our world. And he said, oh, who's that? And I said, well, it's basically, you know, suffice it to say, it's like me saying I'm recording a podcast with Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank you for the elevation. <laughs> I, it's really how we feel. I mean, you've had a massive oh. impact on our lives, our career, and the people that we talk to oh. all day. So we're we're so psyched you're here. Yeah, we're really excited. So I, I'm hoping we can have a pretty wide-ranging discussion today about intuitive eating, of course, and hopefully get to some common misconceptions that people tend to have about intuitive eating. And I will say for folks listening, we're not going to do like an overview of all the principles today. But I think just to jump in here, this might be a strange question, but when you're at a social function and you're like having a a conversation with somebody uh, in a social setting, just like casually, and they ask you to describe intuitive eating, like what's your like elevator pitch, like short version of intuitive eating? 
I need several elevators because I'm always <laughs> really interested in who I'm talking with because I want to connect. So I'll give you I'll give you a couple ideas. So one sure. time I mistakenly or unbeknownst to me, I booked a reservation for dinner. I was out of town getting ready to stay at a retreat and I needed to eat. It's the only, only place in town. <laughs> and it turned out I reserved a chef's table. So I was among nine other people, 10 courses matched with wine. With every little course that come out, the chef would say what they did at interviews. And it was, we were having so much fun. And halfway through this, I'm a complete stranger. They asked what I do for a living. And I said, you know, I teach people how to enjoy the pleasure of eating and how to respect their body. And they love that. If I'm talking to a teenager, I might talk about how you're the boss of you. If I'm talking to scientists or health professionals, I'll talk about how, you know, it's an evidence-based model with over 200 studies. One of the, the, the basis of operation is interceptive awareness, which is our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise from within the body. But ultimately it's about uh, people getting connection back to their, I would call, <laughs> Called their inner text messages from the body, you know, that we can respond in, in, in a timely manner. Because as you know, diet culture has been so fierce and so toxic that, you know, people can have an incredible amount of knowledge about nutrition and yet feel like they don't know how to eat. And what the missing piece usually is, is self-connection. Because every time you are outsourcing your eating decisions to some guru, some influencer, some plan, you do so at the expense of not getting to know your body. And so that self-trust starts to erode over and over and over again. It's a big factor that I see. But the good news is self-trust can be cultivated. You know, every time you honor hunger with one bite of food, each bite, you're rebuilding that trust and that connection. And how does that go over at parties? <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. And, and by the way, I'll be really clear. I am so passionate about this work. But sometimes you just need to put it on pause, you know, so you can stay fresh and excited. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can hear your passion. And I mean, your passion has come across in your writing so well, and you reach so many people. And, and you know, I really want to talk a little bit about the writing process of intuitive eating. I mean, this is a book that, you know, was published in, in 1995, originally, I'm telling our audience, of course. And, you know, thinking about what was going on in 1995, it's kind of, it blows my mind to think that you released a book with these ideas in it at that time. I mean, the mid 90s, we were like debating, you know, low fat versus low sugar kind of was coming to a head. So <laughs> I think I called it like the great macronutrient crisis on our last episode. And <laughs> I love it. Right at that time, you know, you come out with this book that has these radical ideas about rejecting the diet mentality and reconnecting with your internal cues. I would love to just, you know, if you could give us a little glimpse into those writing sessions with Elise, what were you talking about? Yeah. What were you thinking about specifically in the cultural moment of the time? What what really motivated this book was all the suffering that we're seeing, the suffering for people trying to shrink their bodies. And what came as a big inspiration from my perspective in, into this work were a couple of things. The Minnesota starvation study that blew me away when I was in college to learn about these conscientious objectors who were healthy, who volunteered for this study to see if they can help with food shortages and malnutrition back in the 40s. So these were healthy college guys put on a semi-starvation diet. And what ended up happening blew my mind in terms of what it did to their mental. These men started obsessing about food, collecting recipes and cookbooks. Uh, some of the men developed eating disorder behaviors. One went out because he couldn't stand it and he stole candy. And then he felt so guilty, he made himself throw up and so forth. And as I was revisiting this study in my work, and eating disorders, I just kept thinking this mirrors so much of what I see 
in my patients who are dieting. And then on the opposite side, it's not opposite, but just different. It's on the pleasure side. I was greatly impacted by Julia Child because I had the privilege of being on her task force with chefs. And she was looking to put chefs and nutritionists in the same room. <laughs> can we all get along to see if we can have a common message? And it was just amazing because we'd go out to eat, we'd take two bites of a dish, pass the dish down and, and taste and savor the food. And in the end, you know, we came up with this recommendation, so, you know, to the chefs of the world, when you're creating these amazing dishes, please consider nutrition and to the nutritionists of the world, please consider taste. And, and then a lot of our other work was influenced by uh, the work of L.L. Birch, a renowned um, expert on the feeding relationship between parent and, and, and child. And she talks so much about how parents have well-meaning rules. You know, they restrict certain foods and the kid ends up obsessing, hiding, and disconnecting from their eating. So it was a variety of different uh, avenues of research and theory that informed our work. So we could say, you know, intuitive eating, the, the, the framework was research inspired, but today, fast forward, to have over 200 studies now, including a meta-analysis, is so exciting. And so what's happening right now is kind of a phenomenon because we're being validated in different arenas. So the science is validating us. And, and this is going to sound funny. TikTok is sort of validating us because there's over 2 billion with the B hashtags on intuitive eating. And then main media legacy, you know, we just did a, a feature in, in the New York Times. So it's kind of exciting that we're seeing this from different levels, the, the interest of this. But with this kind of massive interest, especially with social media, uh, uh, comes a lot of misinformation or myths around what intuitive eating actually is. Well, I want to say, Evelyn, that I am incredibly jealous that you got to interact with Julia Child because I think she is such an incredible, inspirational human being. But maybe you could speak a little bit to the research, because for people listening who maybe aren't familiar with the studies that have been done around intuitive eating, can you talk a little bit about kind of the findings from these studies and this meta-analysis? Yeah. So a, a big meta-analysis just got finished about a year and a half ago where they looked at the psychological correlates of intuitive eating and what they found across the board. They looked at 92 studies that intuitive eating is really associated with well-being, psychological health, uh, it's opposite of, of eating disorders and, and so forth. And so that's a really prominent finding. Then there was recently a study in which they looked at 14 intervention studies in which they also measured diet quality, nutrition quality of, of, of people's eating along with the intuitive eating intervention. And what they found is intuitive eating either improved the quality of their eating or it had no choice change, which I think is fantastic because when people hear about our principle, make peace with food, which is basically all foods can fit, for those that don't know the model, they'll say, oh my gosh, if you let people eat whatever they want to, it's going to be a nutritional mess. And that's not what the research shows. And that's also not what our experience has shown. Because when you really have unconditional permission to eat, you get to ask yourself for the first time, hmm, well, I can have this food whenever I want it. Do I want it now? If I eat it now, am I going to enjoy it? And then you're actually tasting it while you're eating it, as opposed to let's hurry up and eat it before I get on with the guilt. Let's hurry up and eat it before I, I change my mind. And then you have a more satisfying eating experience because you're, when and you're eating with guilt, that doesn't feel so good and, and so forth. So it's just exciting to see all the different ways that, it, that intuitive eating has um, had an impact, even including, you know, cancer studies. There's emerging research looking at 
blood sugar control, that it seems to have a, a better effect on glycemic control. And, you know, a lot of uh, people have the impression it's just only about what you eat. But as you know, there's so many other things that can affect blood sugar in terms of stress, anxiety, uh, sleep, and all these other kinds of things. And so there's, there's a lot there to actually get pretty uh, excited about. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I'm really glad that you touched on that kind of fallacy about intuitive eating that, you know, nutrition doesn't matter. I think that's often, you know, something that I hear for people who are unfamiliar with the concept of intuitive eating. Sometimes that can get translated into that idea of, oh, well, just I can eat whatever I want and then I'm not going to be like a healthy person or I'm only going to want to eat one type of food. And as you just pointed out, you know, even the research doesn't support that necessarily. I guess one of the other, you know, misconceptions I wanted to ask you about, Evelyn, is, you know, this idea that intuitive eating is for weight loss. And <gasps> I know, I know, I knew that was going to be your response. And actually, <laughs> um, and I actually, I wanted to bring up, we actually received a, a wonderful email from a listener, Mitch, who had and has been practicing intuitive eating for a while now. And in his email to us, he he shared a link to a podcast that was called Tap In Intuitive Eating for Weight Loss. And oh. I know, I know. And, you know, I guess Mitch had listened to some of these episodes when he was first starting his intuitive eating journey, you know, and he felt disheartened because it was understandably like mixed messages. And I guess I am sure you are aware of how often intuitive eating language gets used to promote weight loss. But how do you respond when you see intuitive eating essentially being turned into a diet, so to speak? Yeah. So one of the things that I did is I, it's, it's still one of my most popular posts on Instagram and I've reposted it and updated it three times and it's called how to spot fake intuitive eating. And it's basically this, if anyone, a health professional, a company, corporation, an organization is promoting intuitive eating for weight loss, run, run as fast as you can because they're bastardizing our model. It's not keto. It's not, it's, not all of these things. So we name very specifically so that anyone on social media, not just Elise and, our, and ourselves, can go and say, that's not what the you know authors intend. See, you know, post on Instagram, data, da, 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 da. And so, you know, the, the irony is we created the intuitive eating model as, a, as an antidote for dieting. You know, reject diet mentality is all about that process. And so to have someone focus on weight loss is the antithesis of of intuitive eating. And it can really cause harm because then someone will think, oh my God, I'm not doing good at intuitive eating because my weight is blah, blah, blah. And intuitive eating has nothing to do with weight. As you know, it's about cultivating a healthy relationship with food, mind, and body. And our mental health is just as important as our physical health. You know, it's the same coin, just two different sides. So that's really, really problematic. And as a side note, you know, uh, as you know, Matt, because you've been trained in our model and certified, I get a lot of health professionals who thought they were doing intuitive eating then they take our training and the certification process and they go, oh my God, <laughs> there are so many nuances here. So we get, we get concerned about the harm that can end up happening or if someone's evaluating their intuitive eating journey based on the changes in their body. It has more to do with the change in your mind, you know, the ease of the eating, the ease in the relationship with the body and not engaging in performative eating, not having anxiety around your eating, not postponing trips or events or vacations around whatever diet that you might be on, that you center your own experience, period. 
Well, I think a lot of the modern behavioral weight loss programs try to use psychology as the motivator for weight loss. <laughs> and so, you know, speaking of something like Noom, when you see, you know, so Jen and I did an episode about this and I used the Noom app for two weeks leading up to the recording, not not to restrict my calories, of course, but to just understand what's mm-hmm. going on in the app. And I was a little floored to see like verbatim intuitive eating language yeah. in the app, you know? So, and, and it felt like I was getting strange mixed messages. You know, on one hand it was, you know, keep your calories in, in the right zone here and eat only the, the green and yellow foods and watch out for the red foods. And then on the other hand, they say, well, practice unconditional permission to eat and listen to your body cues, you know, really try to, you know, cultivate that interoception that you were talking about. And so, you know, they're making millions of dollars. Oh, no, 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 it's billions. It's billions. It's, it's been valued right. at four to five billion, the company. They were taking out Google ads under intuitive eating. And we were getting so many complaints from our readers or for consumers who are actually looking at giving up diet culture. They click on intuitive eating, it would take them to a Noom ad. And then as you were saying, looking at the app themselves, uh, yourself, you saw the, the languaging in there. And so Elise and I actually, uh, through her contacts, sought out a very, uh, very well-known uh, legal firm. And basically they said, yeah, you've got a case, but there's no guarantee that you would win. And it's going to cost you millions. And this company has deep pockets in the billions. And you need to consider the quality of your life if you're going to engage in this. And first of all, Lisa, I don't have that kind of money. And I would rather spend my time uh, moving us forward, moving the needle away from diet culture, then battling every troll and every big company that's trying to make a buck on the vulnerable, uh, you know, and, and not, not putting my time in there. And so we made a decision just, just to let that go. Oh, that's hard. That must've been hard though. So frustrating. It was because it's our work and they're bastardizing it, you know, but, and I think that's what motivated me too, also to write those, uh, pieces on how to spot fake intuitive eating that we can put out good things in the world and hopefully, uh, people will understand what to look for and, and so on. So yeah, that was a very frustrating moment for sure. Well, I always really admire your, your commitment to the positive, to the research, to the future. You know, I think it, it would keep some people up all night to think about people taking their message and the ideas that they created and using them in ways to either profit in a way that isn't sort of in line with your values or, you know, actually to fan the flames of diet culture. And so, uh, you know, I do really admire the way you, you deal with this. Thank you. But, you know, I think, and again, this is more of a positive light, not to minimize, but it speaks to the value of intuitive eating that big multi-million dollar, billion dollar companies are trying to use our work to, you know, to forward their, their bottom line. Sure. Then, you know what I also think about right now, we are in 60 countries. We have certified intuitive eating counselors in 60 countries. And so that just blows me away that even though diet culture is loud and nasty, we are actually moving the needle. We have a lot of dedicated health professionals who are moving this needle and doing the work. And it's going to take a lot of people in a lot of villages. And it's, it's starting to happen. I guess I have to ask too, like in 1995, when you were first publishing the book, like did you say that you looked at the research and that all of this, you know, I think that's very humble of you to be like, well, we just synthesized the research. Anyone would have seen it. (laughs) I don't think anyone would have seen it. Did you know you had something radical when you published this book? And second question, if I can squeeze it, did anyone try to stop you? Did anyone go this 
are you kidding? This is, we're in 1995. You can't publish a book telling people to re- listen to their body. We can't make money on that. Uh, no, we had no idea. I mean, anytime you set out to write a book, you, you, you think you're, you're writing a bestseller. At least I do. <laughs> 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 I have a I have a passion for whatever I'm writing about. And by the way, I've had books that absolutely bombed in my in my early <laughs> writing days. And it's never a waste of time because you learn something along the way. But I was scared. I was scared how we were going to be received by dietitians. And the thing that really heartened me, and this is a fast forward moment to 2019, Elise and I spoke for the first time together at our national conference at, at FENCI, you know, the, the conference for you know the Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics. And it was a room with 2,000 seats, and there were people sitting on the floor. In fact, the fire the fire department came to say, Yeah, you you're guys- Taylor Swift, Evelyn. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. But, but to see that and to see that people, our, our profession genuinely interested, it was it blew me away. But a side note on that, a backstory that a lot of people don't know, is we got our talk audited by the powers that be. Two weeks, so you have to you know, submit your slides. And I get this email from the uh, chief executive educational officer for continuing education. We need to see your references. And I email back, I email back, I go, well, I don't think you saw my handout with about 150 references on my, you know, and they're like, oh, they need to be on your slides. I go, are you kidding me? So, but actually that was a good thing because now I'm going to have to put my references on the slides. But I talked to other speakers at that conference and they didn't have that same kind of bar to to meet. And I think it actually, in hindsight, that would be a good bar for every speaker to meet at any any kind of scientific conference that you have to show your your citations and that kind of stuff. So sure. that was kind of interesting, a little side note there. So, Well, I just want to put a finer point on this idea that intuitive eating is being included in you know, these weight loss programs. And, and what experience do you think people have when they interact with both a weight loss program and something that's utilizing the language of intuitive eating? Like, what are the risks? What is that like for people? What don't you like about that? You know, I think, I hope I can, I can use profanity because the best way Please. I can describe, anytime someone's using psychology or they take mindfulness and they try and insert it into weight loss, it becomes a mind fuck for somebody. It's like, oh my God, I'm doing the psychology and I still can't do it. Our biological drive is so profound that biological deprivation alone can impact your eating to the point that it feels like loss of control when all it is actually is your body is working. It's it's engaging in a compensatory effect in order to keep you alive. It doesn't know that this famine, which we are wired to survive a famine, does not know it's self-induced or that it's temporary. And I think it's helpful to have that viewpoint that we know that if we were to hold your breath for a long time, whether it's voluntarily or not, so if I get hit by a big wave and I'm holding my breath, when I, if it's a big set, if I come up for air, it's not this polite inhale, it's a gasp inhale for air. And no one says, oh my God, Evelyn, you have lost of control breathing. You need to control, your, you're, you're addicted <laughs> <Right>. to air. <laughs> and and yet, if we look at it as, as air is, as oxygen is essential to life, so is food, that when we're deprived of eating, similar kinds of mechanisms are going to come into play on a biological level and a psychological level that we're going to inhale our food. And so sometimes people, they internalize that, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. I can't stop eating. It's like, no, your body's working just fine. It's a compensatory response to not having enough food or going too long without eating and so forth. And what's really interesting 
interesting looking at emerging research around food insecurity in which people don't have enough food to eat or they don't know if they're going to have food to eat. We see this strong correlation with binge eating and also with um, uh, eating disorders. And I'm, I'm thinking to call it binge eating might be a misnomer. We need to, I think, say it's compensatory eating. It's a natural response to an unnatural thing. The idea that any human on this earth goes hungry, it's just, it hurts my heart, you know? Yeah, we agree. We're, we're right there with you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thinking about food security and food insecurity, how does that relate to intuitive eating in your mind? Like what, what is that Venn diagram between dieting and food insecurity? You know, like can people practice intuitive eating when they don't have access to enough food or, or a variety of foods? I think it's a really important question that you're asking. You know, when you think about on college campuses, 39% of students are food insecure. Uh, that's such a big problem. So how, how the, the, the thing with intuitive eating then is we, we, we shift our priority. And the first priority is access to food. How can we get access to food? And usually what I find from a health professional who's working with anyone in these populations, you need to know what your local access is, the food banks, the charities, the churches, and, and, and so forth, and what you can have access to food. Then on an individual level is, okay, satisfaction becomes how can I fill my belly in a way that's going to sustain me with the, with the food that I have access to. And then thirdly, I think this is so important, this is kind of a component of respect your body, is to normalize rather than shame people if they end up binge eating. It's a normal compensatory response. Or if they get all of their vouchers and they, they go eat them all up at one time or in that week, it's not because there's something wrong with them. They can't plan. It's the body has experienced a trauma. Food insecurity is a trauma on the mind and, and, and the body, and it's a very serious problem. The difference with dieting, it's self-induced. It's still a, a hugely problematic, but to not really know when you're going to have food from a food insecurity standpoint is much more traumatic. And if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's one of our basic needs, you know, food, shelter, and and water. So it's, 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 it's profound. And so what I say to anyone who is currently in that situation or has had that situation, it's really important to give yourself compassion. But where I have seen the intersection in my personal life of working with, with patients, I'll work with somebody who is very successful, <clears throat> has a privilege, financial privilege, and they'll say something to me like, you know, Evan, I sit down and and eat and it feels like I'm never I'm never gonna have another meal again. And then I and, and then I'll realize, oh my God, did I ask you about food insecurity? So if you have that in your history and you start dieting, dieting actually mimics that trauma. And so the healing is it becomes even deeper. And so as an adult, when you do have privilege and access to food, it's reminding yourself, I can have the food, I have the means. I even have some people, you know, buy their favorite foods they didn't have access to and just store it so they can see that it's there coming from a place of abundance if they do have that kind of, of privilege. So dieting does a secondary damage there when someone has a food insecurity history. Yeah, I think it's interpreted sometimes as intuitive eating is privileged. It's it's only for the the lucky few who are able to, uh, you know, have a wide variety of foods and enough money to afford a wide variety of foods and enough food. But I I just think it if anything it just shines a light on the fact that you've really hit on the biological and and psychological response to deprivation. Yeah, and that isn't a problem with intuitive eating. That's a that's a systemic issue. It's a systemic issue. And, and if you think about it, what is centered in intuitive eating is the individual. We give them agency. And when someone has food insecurity, they don't have that agency. And now we'll get into the weeds. When you when you look at you know publicly funded programs that are focused on shrinking people's bodies, 
rather than using that money to solve food insecurity, to solve poverty, uh, those have a bigger, you know, a huge impact on health. And you're right, it's a systemic issue. And so to expect any one model to change the system, you know, we, we're not claiming that we change the system, but you right. can have access on, on, on different levels. But one of the things we're doing, because we're, we're updating right now the intuitive eating workbook, and we're adding a social justice chapter and looking at some of the principles of intuitive eating from a systems aspect. So, for example, we were not born hating our bodies, but we are socialized into that. It's, we're socialized in our institutions. Then when we start looking at uh, you know, like reject the diet mentality. Well, if we didn't have diet culture at a system level and in our healthcare policy, we probably wouldn't have as much trouble with, you know, that rejecting the diet mentality and so forth. So I, I think it's important to acknowledge that, that we've got this cultural system of problem. And that if we didn't, then on an individual level, it wouldn't be such a daunting idea, you know, to heal your relationship with food. We have to acknowledge what's happening in our environment in this way. such a great point. And, you know, you're, we're talking, we're really talking diet culture and the like larger, you know, social impacts that it has. And, you know, I, I want to circle back to another misconception that I feel like I encounter a lot in practice. And that is that the belief that once you're a confident intuitive eater and you've embraced intuitive eating and you're practicing it in a way that feels good, that you'll never think about wanting to lose weight or dieting again. This is a narrative I see a lot. And I see people express a lot of frustration because I think you know, kind of intrinsic to that, they feel like they're not being a good intuitive eater or the perfect intuitive eater if they're still thinking about wanting to lose weight and dieting. And so I just, I'm curious to how you would respond to that. I think it's such a good question to be asking. So first of all, my response is as is, is affirming and validating. It's like, it's understandable that you would have occasional desires to lose weight because it's in the water that we're swimming in. It's in our culture. And one of the things I'll have my patients do as a kind of a thought experiment, it's like more than a thought experiment, is in the upcoming week, and I invite anyone listening to do this, is notice all the different ways in which diet culture enters your life, not through you bringing it in, but it is there. Notice it at your institutions, like your churches and synagogues. Notice it in the education system, in your kids' math problem. Notice it by a family member uh, complimenting you or someone else on their body or degrading their body. It's, it's everywhere. And so when someone says, oh my God, I'm, I have this desire, I say, it's understandable. You're human. And conversely, once someone's brand new to intuitive eating, I don't want someone to have the impression you have to be all in. You can still have a foot in the door of wanting, having a desire to lose weight and want to become an intuitive eater. The action step in this case is can you not act on that desire? Because otherwise we'd be expecting people to come in with perfection, <laughs> you know, and that's a very tall order. I don't know. Nobody is perfect. It's not even our DNA. DNA mutates. And if you think about it, perfectionism is also a byproduct or part of diet culture, binary, all or none, good or bad, perfect, non-perfect, pass or fail. And intuitive eating is a journey of discovery. It's a journey of learning. So even when you have a situation where you are maybe upset about an eating decision or something that went on, 
uh, we don't say that's a failure. We say, okay, what, what, looking at this context, what can we learn from this experience? If, if you were in that same type of setting, what did you learn about your, your body and so forth? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this is going to be a harder question in some ways, but I think it ties to what we're talking about right now. You know, we, the three of us know and acknowledge that weight stigma is very real. um, And we know that folks who are living in larger bodies are often treated terribly because of their weight. I mean, I have worked with folks and I'm sure you have too, who were legitimately treated better when they were living in a smaller body. And I think sometimes there can be this, this kind of like hopelessness. If I, if I can't diet, does that just mean I have to deal with living in a body where I'm essentially automatically discriminated against? And, you know, how would you respond to that? Again, very understandable feeling that can be triggered by moving away from pursuing active weight loss. Yeah. So first of all, I would really say it's, it's understandable because you don't want to be the target of bullying, concern, trolling. You want to be able to go into an airplane and know that seatbelt's going to fit you. You want to be able to go into a theater and, and, and so forth. And so part of that desire when they're seeking weight loss, if you're in a larger body, is they're talking about safety. I want to be, I want to be safe from all these attacks. I want to, when I go see a doctor, to actually be evaluated for my presenting problem. I have an earache. I want to get an evaluation. Uh, there have been many cases of patients who go in with pain who are in large bodies where the doctor dismisses them and says, oh, just lose weight, you'll feel better. They end up having cancer and a couple of notedly have, have died. So it's, it's, a, it's a deadly kind of thing. But then we step back and say, okay, but we need to understand what we know from, from the research. And when you look at the weight science is a, an overwhelming body of research that shows that not only does dieting not work, let, let me back up, it, in the short term, like maybe in, in the first couple of months you might lose weight, but what it is predictive of actually is gaining back more weight than what you've lost. And for the great majority of people by year five, they will have gained back all the weight, if not more. And it perpetuates weight cycling, which in of its has a lot of different health risks associated with, you know, in terms of blood pressure, cardiovascular, and and so forth. So this very thing that you're seeking to do doesn't work and actually creates the opposite in terms of what you are seeking. And I find a lot of people don't know that. And it's really understandable because when we've got healthcare uh, with these strong marketing machines and now with big pharma with their big money and big marketing, talking about you got to lose weight or you're going to die – it's understandable that someone have this belief, well, weight loss must work or my doctor wouldn't be recommending it. And it's it's such a huge, big problem. Yeah. And so, so when you're working with somebody who is feeling that way, how do you get them excited about the prospects of intuitive eating in their life? Because, I mean, there's so much to, I mean, you talked earlier about the research. One of the outcomes of that, you know, meta-analysis into the psychological correlates is improved life satisfaction. How cool is that, right? Yeah, yeah. This framework that you and Elise developed and, and you know, when it's put into practice, increases our enjoyment of our life. Like that's, that's pretty big. Like how do we get people excited about that when they're feeling kind of hopeless? They feel a little stuck. Well, sometimes we can ask, we can do a little thought experiment and that is what would your life be like right now if you let go of the agenda of trying to change the size of your body? What would be different? How much time might you have on your hand? Um, how would you, uh, in terms of the act of eating, in terms of the enjoyment of eating, would you get more pleasure in eating? Would you be more connected in your relationships? And this is what I see all the time. It's not talked about enough. And that is if you're going out with a loved one, let's say your partner, you're going out for dinner, and you are on some kind of diet or you're thinking you should be, 
And in your mind, you're counting the macros or you're figuring how you're going to compensate. So your body is there at the, at the table, but your mind has left it. The connection has been disrupted. And so there's these other things that you can get back because uh, dieting and diet culture takes up so much brain space. So part of it is actually kind of taking an inventory and looking at all the ways uh, dieting has impacted you. And there's this phenomenon I see, and that is with a lot of people that have this belief, it really worked. It really worked. And it's kind of like a first love. It gets romanticized and it was so easy. And, you know, sometimes the first diet is very easy, but then, you know, it, it doesn't work and the weight comes back and so on. And people keep trying to go back to that, that first love, but the body gets smart and it gets more difficult and more difficult over time. So it's looking at what was the real impact? What was the impact on your social setting? What was the impact psychologically? What was the impact biologically and so forth. And if we can really look at that, uh, there's a huge cost that ends up getting paid, but it's very seldom talked about because these diet companies don't market those kinds of things. People are and are usually fantasizing, you know, all these ideas of how life's going to be just amazing once they get down to a certain body size and so forth. And instead, I, I like looking at, can we start shifting that fantasy on how life's going to be so great when you let go of that brain space of trying to change your body? And our most of, of, of our things that affect our weight anyway or beyond our conscious control. They're deeply regulated, you know, by our, you know, body at an unconscious level, you know, it's like our kidneys working. We can't, you know, necessarily control how they're working. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great point. I mean, Matt and I philosophically, you know, always on the show kind of acknowledge and recognize that we only have a limited amount of time and attention. And we are always talking about how we just want people to have more time and attention for other things besides dieting, besides chronically worrying about their food choices in a way that, you know, impacts their me mental and physical health. Yeah. And, you know, when I mean, you think about it, you know, your relationship with yourself is the most important relationship you'll ever have. And even if you're not foisting this onto other people, the anxiety, it gets picked up on, you know, the, uh, there often is this thing not talked about very much either profound amount of self-absorption when someone's on a diet. It's, it's amazing to me. I, I do a lot of observation. I want to be really clear. I'm not judging. It's a lot of observation. I'll be at a party. I'll be at a restaurant. I'll be somewhere. And I'm hearing someone talk about their latest, greatest diet. And I'm just looking at around the table and pe watching people's eyes glaze over. It's like, they don't want to hear about the diet, but they're not taking the, the, the cues, the social cues and so forth. And so it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Once again, disconnecting you from whoever it is that you're talking about. Or talking with rather, you know, I'm uh, a dad now. I've got a uh, five year old. Uh, <laughs> in, in those in those situations, I'm looking around, going, "I hope there's no kids here." Yeah. And, and I wonder if you could speak to, you know, I think in in like food parenting, we often tend to think about what we do as a parent, like what what lessons we're trying to actively instill in children. But yeah. I feel like there's there's not enough talk about modeling and how being somebody who has a healthy, peaceful relationship with food or who would, whether you actively pursue intuitive eating or just score highly on an intuitive eating assessment, like how good that is for children. Do you, could you speak to that? Yeah, I'm so glad you're asking. You know, I, I wrote about this in my last book and it's this idea of you can change the legacy of diet culture at your kitchen table with your kids. So if you're newly, you know, having kids or you have little kids or even at some point, it, it's daunting this idea to change diet culture, which is incredibly toxic. But our homes can be this place 
in which all bodies are respected, food is respected, we're not denigrating bodies or food. And so it can be incredibly profound. And it's powerful what gets transmitted to kids in terms of values without even having the spoken word, you know, where a parent is self-criticizing their body, their food choices, or worrying what people are going to think about them. And I want to be really clear, I'm not here to throw parents under the bus. I'm a parent. And I think parenting is one of those humbling things you can do. And my my kids now are grown, but I look back, you know, and all the things I felt like, I, sometimes I was like diving over on the bomb to, to you know, protect my kids from dying culture when some things were happening. Um, and so that that's just incredibly important, this idea that you are in charge of your body. Only you know if you're hungry and full you know, at little level. In fact, my, my daughter, it's so cute. She'll ask her, my, my grandkids are um, six and three, or one is going to be before, and she'll ask, are, are you little hungry or big hungry? Because that's how they understand, you know, eating. And it's, 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 it's really beautiful. And that, you know, if you're full, you don't have to eat the full food. And that includes when you're going to other people's houses and so on. And that is respecting what your own family's guidelines are. So it can be incredibly healing. And conversely, and unfortunately, I cannot tell you the amount of adults I have worked with whose well-meaning parents put them on a diet, you know, in conjunction with the, the pediatrician. And what ended up happening is, you know, a 10-year-old is told you can't have these kinds of foods. And so they end up sneaking the food. They end up binging on the food and feeling really guilty because, you know, they're only 10 years old and they're going against their parents' wishes. And so as they become an adult, they've received this powerful message. You can't be trusted with your eating. You can't be trusted with your appetite. And it becomes a real big mess. And by the way, that is still workable. It just takes a little longer to work with that particular situation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, a great point. And I guess I also want to ask, you know, we've talked about, you know, uh, younger individuals, but I also want to talk about specific groups of people that may have a harder time recognizing internal cues, hunger cues, fullness cues. You know, I'm thinking particularly, you know, maybe about neurodivergent folks who may have ADHD or autism, maybe somebody taking a medication that either stimulates or suppresses appetite as one of the side effects. Um, I think, you know, beginning to recognize hunger and fullness can be challenging for most people at the beginning of their IE journey, but, you know, for some folks even harder than others. And, you know, so would you have any particular I guess, advice for people who are really struggling to connect and focus on that interoception that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation? Yeah, it's first of all, it's really, really workable. I'm going to take a little side tour, but I'm going to answer your question specifically. But there was a paper that was just published looking at this very issue and looking at neurodivergency and intuitive eating. Is this a workable model? And the answer was yes, and. And they did the authors did this beautiful thing where they put all ten principles of intuitive eating in a chart, and then on the on the on another column, looking at neurodivergent issues in which there might need to be some modifications. And it's a very adaptable model. That's what I would say. And so if someone is out there really struggling, you know, it might be helpful to work with a health professional who specializes in both whatever your issue is and intuitive eating, because it is a spectrum. Not everybody, they, they might still have connection to hunger, just not clear connection. And these things are, are teachable and trainable. So even, you know, with medical conditions, you can integrate medical nutrition therapy with intuitive eating. But in my opinion, it takes two specialties, the, you know, the dietitian with the expertise in the medical nutrition therapy, and then also with the intuitive eating aspect. And usually what the missing piece is, whatever the medical nutrition therapy uh, regime is, is connecting it back to that person's body, connecting it back to taste, 
and satisfaction and centering the patient as opposed to centering us as an authority. This is what you have to do as, as we're, many of us were taught that way in, in school and in our internships and so forth. Well, I know, Evelyn, as as we kind of head toward towards the end of our conversation today, I have one at least final fun question for you. Um, so we can kind of like maybe end on a light note. I am curious to know if I handed you a magic wand and you could change one thing in the world of nutrition, what would it be? We would get rid of weight-centric studies and we'd require all nutrition professionals to be trained in intuitive eating. <laughs> I love it. You have love supreme it. power in this moment. So go, go big. Yeah. What would you do? I'm curious since you've had time to think about the question, what would you do with that power? I think for me, it would just, I just think I would snap my fingers and have there be no more diet culture and everything that entails. So, I mean, very similar to you, but just, just no more, no more, you know, being saturated with diet culture from the time that we're, you know, old enough to be able to absorb information, which is, you know, something I think shapes most or many of our relationships with food from the time that we're very young. So my wand would, you know, dismantle diet culture in, in an instant. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Oh, how do I add to that? You guys both crushed it. <laughs> yeah, I still I would like a response. It's your duty. <laughs> well, on our show, we talk about wellness grifters all the time, making so much money selling lies oh. to people. And we kind of go through all of the misinformation that goes out there. And so I, I guess I would like, I don't even know if it's like legislation, but I would just like like a collective agreement in society that we are not going to profit off of lying to people about nutrition oh, concepts. Yeah. That would be really helpful. Oh my gosh, that would be. And I'd want policy change. <laughs> I want to eradicate anti-fat bias and eradicate hunger. There's so much that goes under the heading of, of nutrition, actually, when you look at that, the scope on a, even on a, on a legislative and policy aspect. It's, it's one of the Absolutely. most frustrating things to me is policy. I tra- as you know, I train a lot of health professionals and they're stuck in a system in which is mandating weight loss or weight centric care. The health professional knows it doesn't work and they're feeling stuck between the system and meeting the needs of the, of the, of the patient or the client that they're working with. And so that, that is a huge thing that needs to get changed. Absolutely. Well, I think about even how we were taught in school or what we were taught in school as dietitians. I mean, it was very weight centered. And, you know, for Matt and I, we both had to do a lot of our own reading, our own research to really start to understand what we wanted to focus on in this field. So I I agree with you. I think there's a lot that needs to be done with, you know, how weight is discussed and approached in a healthcare setting. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because in the last couple of years, when I, when I do either public speaking or training, I, I talk about my cultural resume and I got inspired to do that by my social justice leadership coach, Desiree Adewin. In our first meeting, she gave me her social resume and, and I just thought, wow, that was powerful because you get to learn about somebody that's not in a, in a bio. But I will say that my bachelor's degree is in diet culture and I have a master's degree in diet culture. <laughs> and that's not to say that there wasn't any good. I mean, obviously, I, I, I've learned a lot about evaluating science. There's a lot of good stuff I received mm-hmm. from my education, but there was also a lot of unlearning that came with that 
as well. And then I was also uh, impacted by, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about, you know, structure, systemic structures. We, we hit just slightly on uh, capitalism, but then we start looking at, you know, the patriarchy. I had my first run-in with the patriarchy when I was in high school. I was uh, running on the boys' track team because they didn't have a girls' track team. In fact, they didn't even make girls' clothing or shoes. So I ran in boys' shoes and boys' clothing. And I would beat the boys, not all the boys, but it was fun. And it came the day for me to letter. And the coach did not want to give me the letter because I was a girl. And I just wow. thought that was wrong. And so with my parents' support, I fought and I got my letter. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's that rebel that's been with me, you know, for quite some time uh, on on that particular particular level. And I grew up with a dieting mom. And so that's a huge impact, especially when, oh, I'm going to tell this story. I will never forget when my mom was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And we are sitting in my living room. And for some reason, it was just me and my mom, which is unusual because there's my dad. And I got three other siblings. And she starts talking. And she says, you know, she stands up and she twirls around very slowly, taking an inventory of her body. And she says, all those years of dieting, what a waste. Mm. All I want to do is grow old and see my grandkids. And I'll never forget that. And that has also fueled my passion, you know, between the, seeing the suffering of my, my patients and the suffering of my, of my mom. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it has, it has, has a big impact for sure. Well, Evelyn, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I know that both Matt and I feel like intuitive eating has been incredibly helpful in our own lives, but we've also both witnessed and practiced just how beneficial intuitive eating has been for our clients and healing from diet culture and finding a more peaceful relationship with food. And so we are just so appreciative of the work that you do and so appreciative of you taking the time to speak with us. I really think that this episode is going to be helpful for a lot of the folks that listen to the show. So again, just thank you for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation very much. All right, go go get some surfing in. <laughs> thank you. I really, I truly, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was really, really good. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so so much. Nutrition for Mortals is a production of Oceanside Nutrition, a real-life nutrition counseling practice in beautiful Newburyport, Massachusetts, where we provide individual nutrition counseling, both in-person and online via telehealth. Feel free to learn more about our practice at OceansideNutrition.com. If you want to send in a show idea, you can email us at NutritionForMortals at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at Nutrition for Mortals. If you're digging the show, tell a friend. Maybe give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.